you don't teach your children to be alone, they'll only know how to be lonely. That solitude is the most important developmental achievement of childhood. Sherry Turkle has been researching the intersection between technology and humanity for a really long time. But she's really turned her focus now towards that little device that most of us hold in our hand for way too much of the day and how it's affecting us. You know, how does technology, especially our phones, our smartphones, what's it actually doing to us and for us? And instead of arguing that, you know, we should just give up or walk away from technology, she kind of makes the point that this is a part of our life. It's part of our future. But we really need to understand what this is doing to us, how it's affecting empathy, how it's affecting conversation, how it's affecting the way that we interact with the world and get what we need from the world. That's the conversation that I'm having with Sherry Turkle in this week's episode. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. Really excited to just be able to spend some time with you. I've actually been following your work for a number of years now, so uh, your your latest just sort of really brought me deeper into your work, which was you know new to me over the last three four years. But this has been your life's work for a long time now. <laughs> yes, yes, it has been my life's work. I didn't realize it was my life's work when I started it, but mm. I have become really deeply engrossed in this um, unfolding story of how uh, digital technology doesn't just change what we do, it changes who we are. And as the technologies have changed, the effects on who we are have changed as well. And I've changed my mind about some things too. Mm. So it's an evolving story. Yeah. Have have you found um, a sense of acceleration in the evolution over, I don't know, the last five, ten years? Or do you think it's really just sort of a linear? Well, I think, I think there has been a sense of acceleration, but I think more profoundly for me, there's been a change in the nature of two, of, of two aspects of the technology, uh, which have kind of turned me from cyber diva, in a way, <laughs> to cyber critic, um, or at least someone who's saying, you know, whoa, let's just start a conversation about, you know, where we want this technology to go. I mean, I was on the cover of Wired magazine. I was once the <laughs> kind of darling of the Digirati for talking about how I think that uh, that I was on the cover of Wired for trying to open a conversation about how technology offers new identity possibilities Mm. and how that's a good thing. And it is a good thing. But two technologies have, I think, begun to trouble me, and those technologies have accelerated and really are a change in kind. And the first technology is that we've developed technology that's always on and always on us. And that's new used to be you would go to your computer hmm. and do something. And that, that thing might be pornography or that thing might be educational. But it was quite distinct that you were going to your computer to do something. And then you could talk about that something. Now, the, the blurring of the line between who we are and who are, what our devices are is yeah. really blurred. And, I, you know, so that means that if you're at dinner... And you pull out your phone, 
and you take your eyes off your conversational partner, you take the eyes off your child who's at dinner with you, you, you don't even notice that anymore because you feel your phone is kind of a part of you. But you have taken your eyes off your child. You have broken the conversation. And we're starting to become inattentive to that. And reclaiming conversation is in large measure about starting to pay greater attention to each other. Mm-hmm. And so that's the change. And then the second change, which I didn't see coming uh, until recently, is the degree to which we are ready to talk to machines that pretend they have empathy, feelings, uh, you know, a doll that says, hi, I'm Barbie, I have a sister, do you have a sister, I'm mad at my sister, are you mad at your sister, let's talk. In other words, a doll that pretends to have not only feelings but empathy, a kind of pretend empathy, from which a child cannot learn empathy. And this is a you know, I really hear I, my attitude towards this kind of stuff is, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? I mean, I, there is no, there is, as a psychologist, no redeeming, right, there, is right. no, yeah. there is no redeeming social value in this kind of uh, object because it's getting us into pretend relationships from which we cannot learn empathy. So I see an assault on empathy uh, in this particular kind of new object. So... I'm less concerned about acceleration than I am with type of technology and new type of challenge to us as people. So let's let's deconstruct that a little bit. Let's dive into it. And the word empathy is something that comes up almost relentlessly in your work these days, um, mm-hmm. for good reason. So take me a little bit deeper into some of the patterns that you see emerging around this sort of constant on and constant on our body connection with technology and how that is playing with our ability to either develop or stunt the development of empathy. Yeah, well, if you have your phone with you and you're at dinner with a friend, lunch with a friend, and you put your phone on the table, all the research studies show that that will change what you will talk about because the conversation will get lighter on things where you wouldn't mind being interrupted. You won't really talk about anything of consequence. Mm. And not only that, you will feel less connected and less emotionally invested in the conversation. And what's driving that? What's driving that is that phone's on the table, and even a silent phone disconnects us, even a phone where it's visibly turned off will have this effect. Because it kind of makes sense if you just step back and say, okay, the phone is there as a marker that this conversation could be interrupted. So you're you're wearing a sign saying, you're not important enough to me to take the time to have an uninterrupted conversation. And we're sort of wearing that sign. We're kind of walking around the world wearing that sign to each other almost all the time. Now, that is, you know, for me, that's one of the key experiments that really we need to pay attention to. And when that experiment is repeated and the phone isn't put on the table between two conversational partners, but is put in the periphery of their vision, the effect is the same. You still get this degradation of conversation and you still get this, this other person isn't as important to me. Hmm. 
I don't really care as much about so this So just literally knowing that it's it's in in the presence of a conversation where it's reachable and that alone changes the nature and the depth right. of the conversation. So when parents bring their phones to breakfast and dinner, they're saying that to their kids. When you take a walk with your kid to the grocery store and you need to, they see that you need to bring your phone along. Mm. Children tell me that they cannot remember a time when they were alone with their father, let's say, and he didn't have a phone. A child has never had an experience of taking a walk with a parent where they felt alone, alone with the parent, and available for an uninterrupted conversation. It's an extraordinary thing. One of the most poignant interviews I did was with a dad who had an 11-year-old, I'm trying to actually remember the, the ages of the, of, the two, of the two sisters, but I think he had an 11-year-old daughter, and he had a 2-year-old now. And he talks about how when the 11-year-old was a baby, he used to give her baths, and he remembers fondly how he used to talk to her in the bathtub and sort of play with her little toys. My, my right. daughter used to call her her guys, you know, and sing to her and, you know, just, just talk to her. And how now with his two-year-old, he sits in the bathroom when she takes a bath. She's not in, at risk, not worried about her drowning, but he does this mail on his phone. Mm. And, and he says, you know, I hate this. But he does it anyway. So the question for me is, we know we hate it. Yeah. We know that it's destructive. Maybe we don't know the level. I mean, some of the research that you've done and that you've yeah. shined the light on really brings it home. But even without that, deep down, we know. We know it's just, it, yes. like you said, you know, this man said, you know, I hate that. I do it. Yeah. What's making us continue to do that? I mean, is it literally like an addiction? to the sort of intermittent reinforcement of what's actually going on there that makes us almost feel like we're going to shake if we don't do it. Well, you know, one of my favorite statistics is that 89% of people say that at their last social encounter, they took out a phone, and 82% say that it degraded the level of the conversation. So, I mean, to the point that we're doing something that we know on a very wide scale is sort of not good right. in some way. But it feels good because we're being given a kind of constant stimulation, a kind of constant multitasking that our brain actually loves. We're wired to respond positively to kind of the feed, to mm. being given multiple you know, multiple inputs. And I prefer not to think of it as addiction because, you know, if you're addicted to something, you, there's only one choice for you. You have to, you know, stop taking heroin. I mean, you don't have 50, you know, you're going to die, you, you know. Whereas the way I think of this is that the technology is, 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 is a technical term. It's called technology affordances and human vulnerability. We are vulnerable to this technology. We are very vulnerable to this right. technology. But we don't have to go cold turkey. We have to admit our vulnerability. And we have to design both the technology and the social situations we build around how we use it to stare down our vulnerability and assert our human values. So if you know that you're vulnerable to this technology and you're about to go into giving your kid a bath, stop 
and leave the phone out of the bathroom mm. and say, brother, you know, it might feel good to do some email now, but I really want to protect this time to have a moment with my with my daughter or my son and bath time is that perfect moment and a lot's going on in that quiet time in the bath it, it it is a conversational moment but it's also how we teach children the capacity for solitude to just sit with them quietly and let them sit quietly and and be able to experience the capacity to just play in, in, in kind of quiet. We, we learn the capacity for solitude by being alone with someone sitting next to us. Yeah. So we really need to model it. We need to model it. And, uh, but it's so interesting because uh, you know, first glance, um, you know, we're both parents. I have a teenager. You know, I see kids growing up in a profoundly different world than I grew up in, in terms of the exposure to on the body, always on technology. And I grew up in a world where I was sort of like a very artsy kid and I really enjoy solitude and I'm comfortable walking in the woods, I'm comfortable going down to the beach. And even though I'm surrounded by technology on a daily basis now, I still really, I yearn for solitude and, and I have the ability to turn it off. Um, and I think we're, my sense is that we're, we're really losing an understanding of why solitude matters in the first place also. Can, can you sort of talk to that a little bit? Yes. Well, the sum up point is that if you, if you don't teach your children to be alone, they'll only know how to be lonely. Hmm. That solitude is the most important developmental achievement of childhood. And here's why. That if you know how to be alone if you have the capacity for solitude, that means that you come to relationships with other people, ready to see them for who they are, ready to appreciate who they are, because on some level, you have a sense of who you are. And so in your contact with them, you're not trying to turn them into who you need them to be. You're actually able to see who they are. And that means you can have real relationships. Now, if you're not able to be alone, if you need to be constantly reaching out to other people to kind of sustain your fragile self, you're making people into sort of little machines to, to, to sustain you. Mm. you. You really can't see them. The capacity for real conversation and real relationship depends on your capacity for solitude. So... You really can't do away with the capacity for solitude and say, oh, I'll just get my, you know, I don't need that. I'll, I'm just on the social network. I, I don't need that. Uh, it's, it's not sort of something that you can um, do without. Or you will always be someone who's looking to other people to find out who you are. Yeah. Uh, and we, sh we, we shun people like that. I mean, you know, of course, in a certain, to a certain degree, we always, I mean, I don't want to make this a kind of, you know, complete black and white thing. Everyone, even, even people who are really good at solitude are always in social relationships, always yeah, of kind course, of fine-tuning who they are in social situations. But at a fundamental level, we, when we're with somebody who's, who, who we know is kind of shadowing us to figure out who they are, we, we don't like it. You know, that, yeah. that's not the kind of people we want to be with. We want to be with people who have a sort of sense of their center and who we know have something to give us. So um, 
the capacity for solitude is very, very important. And if you're constantly being bombarded with the feed, and if you're constantly uh, in a culture where the rule is I share, therefore I am, you're not really going to be developing that capacity. Yeah. So it's almost like you become, you never develop a real understanding of self. And I mean, that on, on one level, and then, so you look to others to almost help define who you are yes. um, by your interaction with them, which also makes you kind of like lifelong dependent yes. on their continuing definition of who you are and never just like owning it from the inside out. And to a certain extent, I mean, again, you don't want to portray this in such black and white that you make people into who they could never be. I mean, sure. everyone is always sort of fine-tuning. I mean, yeah, of course, I of come course. in here and I pick up signals from you as to, you know, what your interests are and I, you know, we and, and you pick up signals from me. And, we, I mean, you know, social life and, and, and being a person is, is, is learning how to pick up those signals and to be with each other in a way where we... We're with each other in this kind of delicate dance, but I don't become, you know, a different me, right. a chameleon, uh, because I've met you. And there's something about the culture of likes online, you know, where you really go online in order to get those likes. Mm. You know, I, sometimes I call it the world of I share, therefore I am that that is the sort of psychological state of the online life that encourages not a looking within, but a continual looking without. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, like part of that also is that, like you said, if, if you don't have some really strong sense of self, it makes it so that you don't create the space to then truly see others and experience yes. them as they are because you're just constantly looking for them to define you rather than you just saying, like, I'm, I'm good, let me see you. Yes. Let's like let's actually have a real conversation where I can bring myself to the conversation. You can bring yourself, and we can have something a little bit more authentic. Well, you're you're not capable of it, right? I mean, you could want it, but you can't do it. Yeah. And it's it's not it's not good. And you know, you see this with kids who are not able to, you know, who who are not able to do it, who are just looking to be liked, and you want to give them the experiences that they need to develop who they are and then to come to other people with some sense of who they are. And they cannot get that if they just are online. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting. One of the reasons why we're sitting here today instead of doing this over Skype or something else is that I, I always, my preference, I think maybe in hundreds of conversations, I've done one or two remotely just because circumstances wouldn't allow anything other. But the reason I do it is because when I'm face-to-face -face with somebody, like you were saying, the social cues, the energy in the room, there's, just, there's a conversation that happens beyond the words that tumble forth that to me is so much more interesting and nuanced. You know, I can see what's going on. Um, I feel like I lose so much of that mm -hmm. if it's remote. And then when, when you take that and then you go a step further and you remove voice and vocal intonation and rhythm and cadence and it's just letters on a screen it's that much less nuance you know you get that much less information yeah it really concerns me <laughs> well what concern i mean the thing of concern is is not that we you know one of my favorite in reclaiming conversation is this one guy who says to me when i say well you know why this flight from conversation why find ways around conversation and he says 
conversation, I'll tell you what's wrong with conversation. It takes place in real time, and you can't control what yeah. you're going to say. And I mean, it's like fear of synchronicity. That, like, it, this fear yeah. of this fear of synchronicity, and what he's basically saying is that you see me here, so you see, you know, you kind of see me warts and all. You see when I have to pause and I, I have to think, and you know, I'm not, I'm not. I don't have the answer like right away, you know, yeah. kind of attempt to have to take a moment. Right. It's like a real vulnerable foible uh, like self. A, well, like a person. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I think that what, you know, you see is people who feel that they can be perfect, who, who have a standard that online they can edit, they can retouch, they can be who they want to be. They feel that they can be perfect. And I see this most of all, this kind of pressure for perfection, or it's, it's also a kind of transactional sense of a conversation. In my students who don't want to come to office hours, but who want to email me and who want me to email them back. Mm. And I say to them, why? I mean, here I, I teach at MIT. Right. They're spending so much money. They you know, have direct access. They have direct <laughs> right. access. I mean, they, you know, I mean, I guess there are some faculty who don't see their students. But I mean, I really, you know, you ask to see me if you're in my class, you will, you know, right. it's going to happen. And they say that they will be able to compose a perfect email to me. And they believe that I will be able to write them back the email that will most exactly correspond to their question. So they have this fantasy that that what we're about, what this interaction is about, is a transaction. And and, perf- and perfection, too, well, perf- like, like an efficiency. A tra- an efficient transaction right. that they will get the perfect question that, you know, exemplifies their point of view, and I will give them back the most value. And when I think back, I mean, how to tell them, first of all, you know, what pressure on me? I'm trying to sit there giving them (laughs) the perfect email for the transaction, but even leaving that aside, how to tell them that when I was in their position in college, what made the most, the reason that I'm here today talking to you, the reason that I've written this book and so many other books, the reason that I love knowledge is because there were people who were mentors who sat and talked to me, who made me feel that I was worth talking to, who mm-hmm. made me feel that my ideas were valuable, who, when I had a stupid idea, said, you know, that idea, let's see if together we can make it better, mm. who made me feel they were on my side, that I wasn't alone, I mean, that I was valuable, that I wasn't alone, that if an idea wasn't crafted right, it could be made better. How am I going to give that to a student in, in an email? So that's not a transaction, that's a relationship. So they're missing, they're missing the value of me because they won't come in for a conversation. Mm. So this is what, you know, this is why I wrote the book. I, I want people to focus again it's not that I want them to give up their phones or put down their laptops or tablets. Or I just want them to focus again on the value of 
face-to-face talk. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to give it up in order to fully enjoy your laptop. You know, it's not an either-or thing. But some relationships are just not maximized by digital interchange. And let me tell you, the relationship you have with your faculty member is really flattened out if you try to have that on a screen. Mm. I really feel strongly about this. Yeah, no, I can tell. <laughs> Students, um, come to see me. <laughs> and it's also, you know, it, it, it's like it, it also kills, it kills the possibility for serendipitous discovery. You know, because if somebody was just sitting in your office with you and you're kicking around an idea or they have a question, you may end up going off on a tangent that, you know, would never have been in the realm of discovery had it just been this really sort of like crafted, transactional, focused email exchange. Whereas like if you're actually sitting there, you're like, well, what about this? What about this? And when I was thinking about podcasting, I spent an afternoon walking around the Met in New York with somebody who was kind of a legend in the public radio production. And she had you know, created this really amazing franchise. And I was telling her I was interested in radio and public radio. And she said, Why? And I said, well, well, the reach. And because I was there in front of her, I saw something change in her face. I said, what am I missing? She's like, the reach is interesting, but the real power of radio is the intimacy. And boom, like it clicked. But the reason that whole thing happened was because I was in front of her and I saw her face change. And I responded and I asked a question because of what I saw in her face. Mm-hmm. You know, and... And all of a sudden, I got what I was about to do over the next X years on a completely different level. You know, and my guess is that never would have happened had we just traded texts or emails. And it's like so many of the greatest things that have happened in my life or in the business world and personal happened. They weren't planned. They weren't crafted. That's such a great story. That story would have made it into my book. (laughs) (laughs) I, what Actually, what it made me think of was um, one of the young women I interviewed talked about the rule of seven. Yeah. So the rule of seven is that it takes seven minutes, and she just got this out of her head. Her rule of seven was it takes seven minutes to find out whether something interesting is going to happen in a conversation. <laughs> and those seven minutes, she said, are often very boring. Because, it's, you know, you're just going back. I mean, they're not necessarily riveting, not as riveting as the repartee online, where everybody's always trying to be witty, you know. But it takes those seven minutes. You have to put in your seven minutes to see, like, whether the conversation could go someplace. And she says she's not willing most often to put in those seven minutes. <laughs> oh, God. And that was such a, and but she realized, she realized. But that's truth on the ground these days. That's truth on the ground. She <laughs> yeah. realized, but it was a very interesting interview because she kind of real, she she knew the rule of seven, yeah. and she, and she and she admitted that whoa, she just wasn't willing to put in that time, and that that was kind of that's kind of the truth. That's exactly that was the truth on the ground. So when you were walking around the museum. You know, there you are. You're willing to put in a lot of time. You're willing to say something that, to take another turn. Uh. And we all have to 
get back to following the rule of seven and the rule of 14 and, you know, the rule of 28 and maybe yeah. more and, and, and give ourselves a little bit of time to get to know people. You know, it just, we're so, you know, we're so into the feed and into the speed. Um, and obviously, you know, we, we think we're in a big hurry now, but that's why, um, you know, I think that I, I take a lot of hope from the fact that people are so into meditating and yoga and mm. these, these technologies of slowing down. Because I think we're trying to tell ourselves that something is amiss. And so we reach for mindfulness, we reach for yoga, we reach for, you know, we reach for different things. But I think that what we're reaching for is, is some way to to slow ourselves down yeah. and I think we're reaching for stillness and find some kind yeah. of it's not just solitude but it's also a kind of slowing down with each other and I'm calling it conversation the kind of conversation where you take a false turn and you take a false start and you you don't think of that as a waste of time but letting things develop one person I interviewed said I you know I said well what happens in a lull in the conversation and he looked at me like he didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, I, and I said, well, you know, when a conversation, like, like a quiet moment, <laughs> and he basically said, oh, well, that wouldn't happen. I would go to, I would go to my phone and I'd just check my, I'd check my Facebook. And so, you know, this, his experiences of a conversation with no lulls. And I remember when I was editing the book, one of the readers said, well, that sounds like, you know, that, that sounds like it couldn't... Was that really what he said? That was really... I went back mm. to the transcript. <laughs> that was really what he said. The notion of a conversation with no lulls. And there it is in the book, just like that, just like what he said, a conversation, the, the model that you will have a conversation with no lulls. But again, you know, it's in the lulls that we discover who we yeah, are. Yeah, I mean, it almost like it feels like, you know... The notion of errorless learning to me—it's—it's it's like it's in the errors, yeah. you know, where we make our big discoveries. Well, I mean, it's in the silences. Yeah. You know, and, I mean, I guess I'm psychoanalytically trained, so I'm like tuned to this. But you know, it is in the silences. When somebody goes silent, you know, if, if you have, if you are interested in empathy, you say to yourself, "Well, why is that person silent? You you learn so much. You know, the reason you want somebody in the studio is when somebody's face goes blank." Hmm. Well, why their face go blank? And why did I ask? Yeah, and I just, to me, the it's it's always been the more valuable information comes from what's not being said. You know, it comes from all the ways that you're communicating, which actually has an interesting tie-in to your work also, because there's a deliberate way. <laughs> to stop saying things, which ends up being sort of like a snub, you know, we've seen it in the media, you know, called ghosting or, you know, but you can essentially vanish from yes. the conversation. And in, in the world of, you know, technology and phones and texting and all this stuff that has a very specific meaning, you know, so it's almost like when you choose to step out, it's not like you just need to pause, it's not, you need a little stillness, a little space, a little solitude. People immediately freak out. 
Well, this is this is something I discuss in detail in the romance chapter. I call yeah. it the nothing, the nothing gambit. Which that chapter, by the way, freaked me. I, I'm, <laughs> I've been married a long time, it's like, and, and I was you know dating long before any of this was a reality. And I'm I was reading it. And I was like, oh my god, is this really what happens now? I, I, yeah. So the nothing gambit is you, you know, you are in a conversation and then nothing. You know, you text somebody and then nothing. And, you know, it's not, it's not like saying goodbye, and it's not like, it's just quite, you know, it's not like nobody ever said goodbye anymore. It's not like anybody, you know, people weren't dropped or dumped or, you know, but it's very odd. You know, so it, it isn't as though, it's sort of, there's nothing new under the sun in some ways, because it's not as though people were never dropped abruptly or somebody didn't call right. back or so. That, I mean, it's not, but it is, the people who, who talk about it at length, it, it came up so much in interviewing people about romance today is that what, what, what comes up as unique is that texting is a conversation or everybody's insisting to me that texting is a conversation. And it's as though you say something to me in this con- and I just stare at you. And you're like, doesn't she know we're here together in a room and I just said something to her? Like, doesn't, what, 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 and and you're like nonplussed, and your sense of, well, what am I supposed to do next? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of anxiety provoking. Sort of like, or if I said something to you, and you just kind of walked out. Well, I don't know. I'd have to pack up my things and leave. Or I mean, sort of. There's a this. So this ghosting or the nothing response is is quite anxiety provoking, and people now do it all the time and. Not, but not just in romance and anything online. People just feel free to leave. Yeah, I, I thought it was so interesting how you described. I think it was one of the scenarios where that happened, and it's sort of like you were. I think you were talking to teenagers, uh-huh. and they said like the response is not to you know then say hey why didn't you right. you know it's like that's the worst thing you could do because then you're like perceived as well you're stalking you're you know, the, you know the response was more like well. Let me get really publicly active in other platforms yes. so that they see that it doesn't bother me and I'm having right. a great time. And which again is not a new behavior. You know, like just in terms of oh, somebody you know wants to dump me or like they don't want me. I'm going to go show them I'm really popular and I don't need them. No, but it's what's new about it is that you have this new forum where you actually can immediately be online and be doing all this right. stuff and active. I mean, it's just so false and so shareable and tweetable and you're, you know, tweeting every movie you saw and taking right. self, you're taking selfies with your friends and pictures of your food. And yeah, you can fabricate it You're very fabricating <laughs> a whole life and all of a sudden your food is the best food and you're baking mm. things and, I mean, the good things. So... Um, it's definitely a complicated world out there. Yeah. We were talking before about, um, to your listeners, before we started taping, we were, we were talking about uh, the new rules. And I made the point that instead of thinking so much about what the new rules are, I think we should think about what rules would be good for us. That we're, there's, people are always asking me, well, as an ethnographer of this world, you know, what are the new rules and what are the new rules? And I, I'm really more concerned about saying, you know, every technology asks us to think about what our values are and what is this technology 
you know, what, when this, we hold this technology up to our human values, what are our values, you know, and particularly in the areas of privacy, in the areas of accountability, in the areas of transparency and politics and human relationships and how we raise our kids. I mean, so many areas of life. Um, instead of thinking, well, what are the new rules? Uh, we've had not we've had enough experience now with this technology to say, well, what rules would we like there to be? So mm. I don't want to say, well, the new rules are that I mean, I, there was a, a the, I don't want to say the new rules are that parents can text during breakfast and dinner and not t talk to their kids. I want to say, no, no, what kind of way of being in a family dinner would make sense if you want to raise children who, who are caring and competent in social skills no. and empathic? Not saying, well, what's the percentage of parents who text at dinner? Because that's that's the habits that we've gotten into that we need to adjust for. Like yeah. I, I, in my book, I say it's time to make the corrections. It's not time to figure out what our new social mores are. Yeah. I think we can pull up our socks. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a look back at the questions that come way before. You know, that, that, you know, what do we value? And yeah. Just how does that relate to the way the technology is changing and what it's giving us, but also at the same time potentially taking from us? Yeah, I mean, I think this technology has really changed our behavior in really interesting ways, and it's an opportunity. I see this as an opportunity to to say, okay, what are our core values? So when people people say, oh, this book is so anti-technology, I just keep saying, no, it's it's just very pro-conversation. And then I try to say why conversation is important. And if you think it's important, well, then what do you have to, how do you have to live to keep it important and to keep it doing its job? Because conversation can't do its job if you're looking down at your phone. I mean, so, that's basically the reality. I think we've talked about it, but I actually want to double back on this for a second. When you say conversation do its job, in mm -hmm. your mind, what, what, I mean, what is the fundamental job of conversation? The work of conversation Basically, number one is to teach empathic capacity, teach the ability to know the other, comprehend the other, and through that, you gain greater capacity to know the self. So I talk about a virtuous circle that, you know, in conversation with others, you learn about them, but by talking to other people, you enhance your own capacity for inner dialogue. And if that, and actually in the book I use Thoreau and his image of nice. three chairs, that he has three chairs in his cabin, one for solitude, two for friendship, and three for society. And he talks about the relationship between these three chairs and how they, they work together, that you need solitude for friendship and you need both of those to be able to participate in the social world. And you need participation in the social world to be able to have room for friendship in society. I mean, these, we're human beings in society who need solitude, who need friendship. It all works together. But conversation is the thread that holds all of this together. And But, the, but if I had to put it most simply, the current assault on empathy comes from our trying to be on our phones when we're together. I talk about um, this set of interviews I did with college students who kept talking to me about the rule of three. And there are rules of seven, there are rules of three. So the rule of three is that if you're at dinner with your friends, 
let's say there were six of you at dinner, you don't look down to your phone. Everybody has their phone. They assume everybody has their phone. And you don't look down to your phone unless three heads are up, kind of keeping the conversation mm -hmm. up. So you don't look down unless three heads are up. But then you look down. If three heads are up pursuing the conversation, you can look down at your phone. But what kind of conversations are happening in that kind of milieu where people are looking up and down in this skeletal conversation? They're superficial, and they're conversations in which people can kind of go, kind of come in and out in this kind of round robin. So they're basically conversations, again, where people can, don't mind being interrupted. Conversations where not much is happening. Now, those are not the kinds of conversation where conversation is doing its work of teaching empathy, of teaching, you know, connection to other people. Those are not the kinds of conversations where conversations is, is doing its work. Yeah, and, and it really, it makes me wonder what the long-term, and it makes you wonder, I know, too. Where does this lead us if that becomes a prevailing mode of interaction between not just kids, but, you know, this is adults now also. This is adults to kids, kids to adults, adults to each other. You know, in a world where it seems like there has never been a greater need for empathy and compassion and understanding, if, you know, the way the, the way that we interact with other human beings is shifting at a really rapid pace into a mode that starts to strip empathy from the conversation, it freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> well, I'm optimistic. Yeah. Because I think that we've had these devices for a very short time. Mm. You know, as you pointed out, things have accelerated. It's happened crazy fast. Um, in the very beginning, I liken it to two young lovers who were so infatuated. They don't want to talk because they're afraid the talking will spoil the romance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it just came to me, that image. And, and, and now we've had, it them, we've had them for a while. And, you know, we're not afraid somebody's going to take them away. Um, we know we're going to have these phones forever and things more than our phones and watches. And I mean, every, every it's, you know, nobody's going to take it right. away and leave you with your two-way wrist radio or whatever Dick Tracy thing. Um, and I think we're just in a position to see, you know, I've, I've had just found so many people who were not happy with how they were talking to their kids and not happy with, you know, real, you know, who, who just could begin to talk to me about their sense that, they were not living the life they were most comfortable with. I think that, you know, it's a little bit like Rachel Carson's moment of the silent spring. I mean, I think we are at a moment of recognition. And um, I, think, I think we're going to start talking about talk. And I don't think we're creatures who want to live without empathic connection. I so agree. And I think it's, it circles back to what you were saying yeah. before about there's... I'm a meditator. Yeah. Um, my day starts every day with a, a sitting practice and has for years. And I also have a past life as a, you saw in a yoga center in New York City um, and teach. And our students weren't so much, you know, people who are, you know, ultra woo woo metaphysical. There were a lot of people who were coming just from business, you know, and just they were looking to find some stillness in their daily lives. My sense is that the, certainly the conversation around stilling practices has taken off in the last really three to five mm -hmm. years. Yeah, I wonder if the sort of like 
constant elevated sense of always on that's being, you know, connected in some way to this personal technology is behind some of that, you know, without us really identifying it. Absolutely. I think in my mind, this mind, you know, the, the focus on mindfulness, the the interest in, even in the corporate world for mindfulness programs and no. mindfulness practices is a is a gesture. It's like it's like a it's like what can we do? Oh, we'll put in a mindfulness program. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, this is not to say anything against them. Right. It's a good gesture, but what it's pointing to is, is a sense that something is amiss. Yeah, it's a deeper need. And even as people talk to me about this book, I mean, I think that you know, five years ago, I wrote a book called Alone Together. Right. It was about the, the the experience, this new experience of being alone together. And when I wrote that book, um, it had a, it had a very good reception, but ba- a lot of people wanted to fight with me. A lot of people, the first reaction was to want to fight with me. Oh, no. Oh, I don't, I love my phone. You know, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the zeitgeist was still, don't bother me, I, I love right. my phone. I mean, I, you know, the zeitgeist was, oh, I love my phone. You yeah, know? five years. Five years. And now everybody really loves yeah. their phone. Everybody, but, but I think that people are also aware that they're not, um, you know, people are having these experiences where our phones are, you know, our phones are really in the bathroom when we're bathing our kids. And we're missing our kids. They're they're at the game with us. When when and our kids are complaining that we're not watching their game, we're doing our email when we're at their sports game and and reclaiming conversation. I tell so many stories of families who prefer to do their, you know, kind of have their fights, you know, their disagreements online instead of talking face to face because they think that will smooth out the conversation and they're missing you know, what a good airing of differences does for a family. And, you know, and we're, and, and I think people are starting to sense that a little bit too much, a little bit too much phone, a little bit missing uh, what conversation has to offer. So I think things are changing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see that at this moment of recognition is really a moment of hope. For me, this moment of recognition is a moment of hope that we can have a conversation about conversation and its importance to us. I don't think we want our children to not develop empathy. And there's a 40% decline in empathy among college students hmm. in the past 20 years. Tied to technology? or Well, it, it, most, of the, most of the decline is in the, in the past 10 years. So the researchers who did this meta-analysis... Right, there's a lot of correlation tie, there. <laughs> there's a lot of correlation yeah. there. And I don't think we want that. I mean, you know, we're just kind of starting to put this together, and I don't think we're, I don't think we're content. Mm, yeah, I can't argue with that. You know, that another thing that comes to mind around it and around this sort of notion of the elimination of the time in between is that greatest solutions, the greatest ideas, you know, the greatest innovations tend not to come when we're toiling to make them happen. They come when we're toiling to make them happen, and then we create space. And within you know, the, the window of that pause, the pieces of the puzzle, the pattern falls into place, and that's when we you know, run back to find something to write it down. And I wonder what happens when we 
leverage technology to to eliminate the pause. I, I wonder sometimes, on the one hand, and again, neither of us are Luddites. We're not anti-technology. It's, you know, they're amazing, amazing leaps that technology allows us. But at the same time, on just like the basic way that the brain solves problems, you know, where space is so critical to insight-based ideation and problem solving that if we shorten the amount of space that we have available, I, I wonder sometimes what might that do long-term to our ability to solve the big problems, to innovate on the level that's really meaningful in the world? Well, you know, what you're, what you're asking me reminds me of what's called a reality effect, hmm. which is that when great physicists teach, they learn to pretend to be thinking <laughs> while they're teaching because they know that that's a more effective way to teach. So, ah. for example, they make mistakes on the blackboard. They pause. They erase things. They redo the equation. Hmm. So it's not that they really don't remember the equation, but they know that a great lecture, a great teaching experience comes from students watching you think. Hmm. So, so it's called a rea in, in social sciences, it's called a reality effect. They're doing a performance in which they're trying to simulate the reality of thinking, which is about making mistakes and backtracking. And right, right. it just so happens that these are great physicists who don't, who wouldn't necessarily right, make sure. a mistake on the chalkboard. And, and I think that that's what a great conversation is. It's not perfect. It does backtrack. It does have lulls. And what I got out of the interviews with the younger people I spoke with was this intolerance for a lull. Hmm. The, you know, almost where in this very funny interview, I had to kind of define a lull. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like, you know. okay, really stop talking for 10 seconds. <laughs> exactly. <Go. laughs> sort of like, you know, you know, sort of like, or one, one, um, one, or actually a couple, but, but there was one woman who was, a first, I remember the first time she talked about a silence in a conversation as the boring bits. And it was such an interesting locution. It almost sounded British. You know, the boring, she wasn't British. I mean, she told it the boring bits. And I said, what are the boring bits? She says, well, you know, and things go silent. It's like, or, you know, like the, just like she had no tolerance for that. Reminded you know, her, her expectation was that things would be like the feed under, you know, under the, the crawl, under the, under the news, you know, where you have the news being spoken and then you have the crawl underneath the news that if you weren't excited by what's on the TV, you could always read mm. the news under the, under the TV, that, that the boring bits were not necessary in a in a conversation. And how does she get that crawl? How does she make sure that her life always has something interesting to go to? Is that when she's with her friends, she also has her phone. It's so interesting as you're saying that. One of the things that I learned about doing this job that I love to do is that without fail, and I, I, I didn't discover this myself. I was studying all these, you know, interviewers and trying to find out, okay, like, how do you just have an interesting conversation? And um, I can't remember who it was. Somebody very famous said, and I don't follow this rule most of the time, but <laughs> there are times where I really try to. This is um, your rule of three. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It's like the opposite of the rule of three. Um, but they said essentially, you know, count, you know, one, two, three after 
a guest finishes what they have to say before you say anything or answer another question. Mm -hmm. Because within that space, people tend to be so uncomfortable with the lull that they'll feel the need to fill it. And, and they'll fill it with something which is completely unplanned because they weren't, they, this is the spontaneous part of it. Oh, and so that's the stuff. And, and so every once in a while, I, I remember to do that. <laughs> Does <And> it work? <laughs> it's, it is amazing how true that is. I can't tell you how many tangents have, you know, I've gone down which become these beautiful pathways and stories and moments of illumination and discovery and connection simply because I just breathe for a minute. What was interesting to me is also three minutes is interminably long for most people. It's usually, you know, like a little bit more than a second or so. And there's an urge to just have to fill space. And the conversations that emerge from that are just so often the best part of the conversation. Was the advice to wait for three minutes? No, three, three seconds. Three, three seconds. seconds. I'm sorry, did I say three yeah, minutes? Oh, three sorry, my bad. Yeah, that would be pretty brutal. No, I was going to say that would be that Yeah, would yeah, be that's hard. kind but of three no, seconds. Literally just three seconds. And, and it's, so this is, this is interesting, not just in the context of doing interviews, but just conversation. If you're at a dinner party, if you're at a meeting, if you're, you know, and you're really, you're, you're curious about just inspiring, really, conversation that's much more, open and goes in directions that you never imagined. You know, if you just pause for an extra moment, my guess is it's become exponentially more um, unbearable for people to, you know, actually be in that space now. Because well, you know, it's, very, it's interesting that you say that, you know, I, I recently I've had to read articles about myself, you know, I'm sort of like, I, I try and stay away from those when it no, comes no, to I, I really me. have, no, I, you know, you don't get to do that. Until you write a book, you know, yeah. I, I don't write books that often, but, you know, so there's like this lag time, and then all of a sudden I get to read articles about myself. And um, a number of them have said how I pause while I'm speaking. And as though this is like a thing about me. And um, I, I think it must be true because all of these journalists seem to have ganged up and seemed to find it a thing. But really, until I began to read these articles, I never really noticed that I was such a big pauser and deliberate. <laughs> they called me deliberator and deliberate, you know, like how I pause, how I pause to think and I don't just think and say, and I, I, I felt like like writing was saying, and I'm thinking. I'm you know I'm I'm just thinking. <laughs> I sort of, but I've really noticed that that it's a, it is a it's become sort of a thing to say about me that I hmm. pause and think, in between, and I guess I must have a kind of lag time that's quite unique or something but it really I've just been noticing but I do I do I guess and I, I guess I come from a family where people did sort of take a breath and was okay to give it a little give it a little think a, fa a family of pausers <laughs> a fa well no just to sort of think yeah, yeah and not not respond and not not um not just be immediately there with your answer and just kind of think but it's been—it's very interesting how much that's been commented on. 
I'm, I'm, I've decided not to be self-conscious about it, but I hope it, I hope it doesn't make for very bad radio. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it doesn't. Um, one of the other things I actually wanted to uh, bring into the conversation is uh, your conversation and your exploration of how technology affects attention in the classroom. And there's, I guess, hyper-attention or hyper-focus yeah. and multitasking and this is a personal inquiry because, like I said, I'm you know, the father of a teen, and you know we're it work, and we've had this conversation with other parents. Like, okay, you know, if you know the kids are hanging out and simultaneously there's you know there's Snapchat and texting and Skype open, mm-hmm. you know, is that okay? No. Is that not okay? No, no, no. <laughs> no. This is something on which the, actually the the research is very clear. And as a parent, you can speak with the voice of, like, you know, voice of God, I mean, sort of the voice of authority, is that there is no such thing as multitasking. The brain doesn't know how. So what all the studies show is that when we multitask, our competency decreases for in every new task that we multitask. We add a new task, and our competency decreases in every task that we're multitasking. But something very distressing happens when we add this new task, is that we think we're doing better at all the tasks. So there's a sad kind of vicious circle that every time we add a new task and multitask more, we think we're doing better and better, when in fact we're doing worse and worse. That's what the research shows. So every time you are doing your reading and history. There you have your high school student trying to read through a history text. And they add texting. And then they add Snapchat. And then they add Twitter. And then they add Facebook. Well, they probably wouldn't add Twitter, but they'd add Facebook. Every time they add a new device, a new program, a new thing, their ability in every one of those things goes down. I mean, their their attention goes down, their their competency goes down. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you're if what you're doing. Sometimes we make a decision that we don't care. So, for example, um, if I'm updating a database, I don't care if it, while I'm updating my database, I'm also answering routine emails. Mm-hmm. While I'm updating my database and swiping addresses, and you know, if my, you know, if I'm answering routine emails about bills or something while I'm updating my database, and I'm okay with my right. doing everything a little bit, you know, worse. <laughs> and we make that decision all the time that we're willing to multitask and have the convenience of multitasking or I want to watch television while I'm doing all that, so I have television on, I'm updating my database, and I'm doing routine emails. That's a common choice. And so the fact that I'm getting a little bit less out of the television, I'm getting a little bit less efficient at the database updating, and my emails about the bills are not as eloquent, it's all good. Right. But if you're doing something important, you have to choose a task. So Zadie Smith has a wonderful acknowledgement in her, in her latest novel nice. where she thanks a 
computer program called Freedom, an app that that shuts down the Wi-Fi. Which I use Mac. when I'm writing also. Well, exactly. <laughs> it shuts down the Wi-Fi. And so there you are alone with yourself and your blank page and you can't you can't shop. You can't check your email. You can't, you know, there you are. Um, and many writers, I mean, many people are, are, are using programs that essentially shut down their Wi-Fi. Evgeny Morozov has a hysterical, who's a writer in the social studies of science and technology, talks, it's hysterical, he talks about locking his router in a safe and <laughs> giving his wife the key and throwing it away. I mean, it's just, he goes on and on. I mean, people know that they have to do one thing at a time when, when the chips are really down. So we know this. And again, it doesn't mean you can't multitask. You can't choose to multitask if you've decided that the tasks you're doing really doesn't matter if you degrade your attention. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that when we're doing it as adults, we can kind of make those deliberate decisions. But mm-hmm. then when we're setting the tone or making the rules mm-hmm. um, for our kids, there's also there's, um, there's a social consequence to it also. Because that also, and, and that's one of, and not that it's a validation, but there, you know, one of the, the pushback will be, you know, but everybody else is, there, there's, a, there's a FOMO, you know, there's a fear mm-hmm. of missing out that is just fiercely pervasive among a certain generation. And it's almost like, you know, but, but life is happening around me when I'm doing this. And I think it's sort of like saying, going back to those questions we talked about in the beginning, saying, well, what, what ethos do you want to create? You know, what value set do you want to cultivate? Um, well, also, your original question is about the classroom, and there's been a big change in yeah. in how faculty feel about the classroom and devices in the classroom. Because not that long ago, I did a poll of faculty and about devices in the classroom, and, and most college faculty felt, I'm not a nanny, I don't want to be a babysitter, mm. whatever. And now... People have looked at the research, they've had experience, this is why I'm optimistic, they've looked at the research, they've had experience with these devices in classrooms, and they know, in one very dramatic study, you know, that one laptop open, and every, not only does the attention and the performance of that student degrade, but everybody sitting around them, it degrades as well. Hmm. It's, It's kind of like a ripple effect. And one, in, in, in Reclaiming Conversation, I, I interview a wonderful law professor at Harvard named Carol Steiker, who talks about how when laptops came out, she just assumed that, you know, everybody would take notes on them and that would be cool and great. And so she's um, at, at Harvard Law School and, and she, it all began great. And she, she began to discover that students taking notes on laptops, they tried to, um, like do a transcription of the class yeah. because you can almost transcribe the class. And then she would be like saying, um, when she would sort of ask somebody a question, they would be like annoyed that she'd interrupted their transcription. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of like she had turned her class into court stenographers because they were all trying to do a transcription of her class. And then one student, the final story she told me was that one student was ill and... Um, uh, the students were really great, and they'd sort of all tried to divide the labor, and each day another student would um, take notes for that student. And I think she was in the hospital for about two weeks. And one day a student comes up to her and said, you know, I, 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 Professor Steiker, I'd love to have your notes because my, um, I lost power on my laptop today. I wasn't able to take notes. And 
Carol said to her, um, well, why didn't you take notes with pencil and paper? And she says that the student looked at her as though this question was, I mean, it was from the land of the inconceivable. It was from the land of the inconceivable. And what, what Carol Steiker realized was that the capacity t- that she was interested in was the capacity to be in a conversation in class and then distill the essential in a note. Not to transcribe right. a class. And that this student did not have that capacity. She only could sort of try to write down everything that happened. Nah. And that she was doing her students no favors by letting laptops be, you know, by bringing laptops into class. And so here's an example of why I'm optimistic, is that multitasking in class, compute, you know, taking notes on laptops, these are things where I feel you see a profession in flux, Mm. my profession. And you see a lot of faculty saying, didn't work out. Mm. You know, a lot of brilliant idea, made sense, didn't work out. Didn't work out. The data starting to come in, didn't work out. No fuss, no muss. We're not anti-technology. We love it. We do everything on it. Didn't work out. And I, I think that's very hopeful. Uh, and, and you also tell a story where the students, class, you taught a memoir, like the small, where it was actually the students who came to you yes. and said, this isn't working out for us. Yeah, this was an interesting <laughs> class. I, I, I taught a class, I, I still teach it on memoir, where the students basically write about their own experience. So this particular year, I mean, it was a very, a lot of kids who had very hard scrabble lives, you know. There were some stories of... Uh, dealing with uh, difficult family situations and poverty. And uh, there was a boy who basically slept in his car for a summer because he didn't have any place else to go. And I mean, really, you want to pay attention to these stories. And uh, these students came to me in office hours, a little group of them, and they said, you know, we're distressed because we're texting under the table. And um, we want to talk to you about it. And I said, well, let's discuss this in class. And of course, once they, we discussed it in the class, most of the class were doing the same thing. Right. And, you know, they talked about how it made them anxious to not be in touch, not because they had anything to say, you know, out to the world, but because they couldn't tolerate not knowing who wanted them, not seeing who wanted them. And it, it was so moving. I mean, that, that that is the pull, is you want to see who's thinking of you. You want to see who's reaching out to you. And it, it's just become easier to say to people, look, you know, this is our vulnerability. This is what I mean in, in, in my book when I talk about, you know, designing for our vulnerability. I mean, we, we know this about ourselves. We, we want to know who wants us. It's a human thing. So... Put away your phone, accept your vulnerability for the, for the 40 minutes of class or the 50 minutes of class. And, or what I do now sometimes is I, I take, you know, I have a class for 20, you know, if it's, if it's, a, if it's a, often it's a two-hour class, taking 
do 50 minutes and take a 10 minute break and do another 50 minutes and take an, I mean, take a break. I mean, it, right. you know, it, like if you're, go get your head, get out. Yeah, well, yes. Almost, I mean, or if you're having a, it, it, you know, it doesn't just come up in class. It comes right. up in meetings. I mean, all, I, yeah. there's, there are many chapters on business in the, in the book. I mean, if you're having a meeting, you don't want a board meeting where everybody's on their phones. I mean, the number of board meetings where people are texting and there was one hysterical story about somebody who bought a car during a board meeting and the person who's sitting next to him was like staring at him he was buying this car and I'm like <laughs> what you know? I mean you know take a do your you know have your meeting and then take a break let him yeah. buy then buy your car during the 10 minute break we were um, a couple months back wife and I were out to dinner with somebody who uh, owns some businesses and he was telling us how he was having a meeting with all the managers and stuff like that, and there was one guy kind of, you know, texting just, like, openly on his phone while the meeting was going on. And, you know, the boss said, you know, what are you doing? And he said, um, you know, I'm, I'm texting. He said, put your phone away. He said, oh, I can listen and text at the same time. The boss said, pack up your bags. You're fired. Don't ever come back. So it's interesting how there's, there's a real spectrum of how people are dealing with it and sort of understanding the deeper psychology um, well, below I mean, it, these days. It's also, you know, again, we're talking about the rules. I mean, I tell many stories in the book about people who, there's one story about a young woman who um, gives her client presentation and then goes on Facebook hmm. right in front of the client. And later her manager is like crazy, crazy. You know, what? What, hap- what just happened in there? And the young woman, you know, who just graduated business school, it's like, well, I gave a great presentation. And then I was, that was, didn't I? I mean, then I was done. And then I did, then I went on. I mean, that, that her said, she, register, she yeah. didn't register that she had transgressed. Right. Because that's what she always did in school. She gave a great presentation and then she went on Facebook. Yeah. And so the manager, um, well, at first the manager was beside herself and I think was close to firing her. And then she sort of stepped back and said, you know, I just need to re, you know, hit the restart button right. with, with these brilliant business school, just out of business school students from the best business schools in the country and, and accept that they need to be retrained. Mm-hmm. And she just kind of devoted herself to a, to kind of a master class in conversation, which is nah. why I spent so much time with her. Which kind of brings us full circle to a certain extent. So the name of this is Good Life Project, and I'm particularly curious to your answer to this last question, which is always my last question. So if I offer out to you the term to live a good life, what does that mean to you? Someone once said to love and be loved and all the rest is details. And I think that to love and be loved, to have relationships that matter, you have to have conversations that matter. And everybody has different kinds of love and different kinds of relationships that matter. And, but I think that without conversation, uh, for me, if, you try, if you're trying to flatten that out, or not equipping yourself to have the richest ones possible, which I kind of see happening around me. I think you're not putting yourself in the best situation. So sort of for right now, I've made that my 
my quest is to try to study how we can use where technology has brought us to interrogate the kinds of conversations were happening and how to make them matter more. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining in this week's conversation. You know, if you've actually stayed till this point in the conversation, I'm guessing there's a pretty good bet that you've gotten something out of this episode, some some nugget, some idea. If that is right and you feel like sharing, then by all means, go ahead. We love when you share these conversations and get the word out. And if you wouldn't mind, I would so appreciate if you would just take a few seconds, jump onto iTunes or use your app, and just give us a quick rating or review. When you do that, it helps get the word out, helps let more people know about the conversations we're hosting here, and it gives us all the ability to spread the word and make a bigger difference in more people's lives. As always, thank you so much for your kindness, your wisdom, and your attention. Wishing you a fantastic rest of the week. I'm Jonathan Field, signing off for Good Life Project. Thank you.